Why don't we stand to our feet? This morning as we prepare to honor our God, to worship his name, I shared a scripture this morning in prayer that we've all heard many times, but I want to declare it over us before we go into this time of worship so we're reminded of who we are. Because it's easy to come into this place this morning and bring all those things with us. Those things that weigh us down, those things that sometimes hurt us, those things that distract us. And I feel like the Father right now this morning is wanting to say, do you remember who you are? And so this is who he says you are. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, and this morning it was interesting because I was just looking around the room as everybody was praying. And the clothes we were wearing, I felt like the Lord say, these aren't the clothes you actually have on. That right now that you have a heavenly armor upon you. That right now you have the words of the Father within your heart if you would just release them. So this morning as we come into the presence of God, may we know who we are. That we, we can declare that we can lift up the name of the Father and that things do begin to happen. So Father, right now as we come into your presence, Father, we realize that we are a royal priesthood. We are a chosen people, sons and daughters of the Most High God. And Father, this morning as we come into your presence, we will lift your name up, knowing, Father, that as we pray and as we worship you, things are happening, things are changing, not only in our lives, not only in the lives of others, but in communities, in nations, and around the world. And so, Father, today we want to give you the glory and the worship that is due to your name. Thank you, Father. Let's worship him. Okay, I want to address the goodness of God. When I was young and living at home, um, you know, I, I grew up on a dairy farm. And uh, at 5.30 in the morning... Dad came in our bedroom and said, okay, boys, uh, it's time to get up. You know, you need to go get the cows. You need to go get the milking parlor ready. We need to milk the cows this morning. And I uh, just want to say right now that at that time, I did not look at my dad and say, I just want to tell you, you are a good, good father. Because that didn't really feel like goodness, if you know where I'm going. But my dad was establishing in us a work ethic that would serve us well all of our lives. And he was training us and teaching us to do real jobs and make real decisions that matured us and made us into the men that we are today. And he was also solving a labor shortage because that job needed to be done and he needed somebody to do that job. And so he needed us to step into that place. But, but I need to emphasize at that time, nothing about what he was doing felt like goodness. And if we didn't get out there and do a good job, something landed on our backsides that really confirmed to us that our father was not a good father, if you understand what I'm saying. I, I really believe in my heart. What the Lord, okay, I'll just say exactly um, 
on Friday morning, not this Friday, but last Friday, the Lord said to me, we are entering into a place in this body where, to, where we are going to begin asking for things that we don't want. And just let that soak into your spirit for a little while. Because as you begin to be matured, you understand that everything that I want is not necessarily what is going to grow me up in the Lord and what is going to mature me. But the things that I really don't, that my flesh cringes at and says, mm, don't let this happen, God. Actually, God is letting that happen and causing that to happen because he has an intention to mature you and bring you into excellence and bring you into something that is valuable. And, and this is a tremendous struggle inside of me. And I, I don't know where you're at with that, but there's a tremendous battle with me because I still want things to be easy. I still want things to be nice. And, you know, I don't want to get out of bed at 5.30 in the morning. But God is in the business of maturing a body. God is in the business of bringing us to another place. And so we want to say this morning, whatever maturity level we're at, we want to say this morning, you are a good father. I can look you in the eyes and say you are a good father. I completely don't feel comfortable in my flesh with what you are doing with me right now. But I say you, with wisdom and with some degree of maturity, I say you are a good father. Your decisions are excellent. Your ways are past comprehension and past understanding. And so we say together this morning, Lord, wholeheartedly we say together, do with us what you would do, God. Do with us what you would do, God. Do with us what you would do, God. I just want to add to what Derek was saying because this is something that needs to absolutely reside in our spirits, that God is good. This needs to be a settled deal. It just needs to be absolutely settled. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, God has uh, gifted many of you with good minds, you know, the ability to figure things out, the ability to understand even mysteries, even, you know, hard things. Uh, I look around, there's many of you here that are really gifted in that area. But here's the deal, and God showed me this years ago. When there's something going on, and it feels like God isn't good because I can't understand it, you know why that is? It's because I can't understand it. That's it. That's as far as that goes. It just means I don't get it. That may be yet. That may be forever. But it's not a big deal. I just don't get it. All right. But when this thing is settled, when it's utterly settled, God is good. I don't understand my life, but God is good. Then you can walk into that peace that passes understanding. You know, you, you can't have the peace that passes understanding if you demand to understand it. Then it's not the peace that passes understanding. Then it's the peace I understand. Okay? That's not nearly as deep. The peace that passes understanding is when I don't get it. But it's settled at such a root level. It's just settled. God is good. End of story. I look, I see Paul Captain sitting there, and we had a, you know, a very similar upbringing in many ways. And one of the things that, that our upbringing kind of taught us is that 
God is utterly sovereign, so he can do anything at any time. But that came with this sense of, you know, God is arbitrary. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know a smaller word. He's capricious. He's, uh, you know, he just does stuff because he can. Okay? But you know what? You don't have to worry about it. Because at the root, at the bottom, it is true he's sovereign. It is true he can do whatever he wants at any time. But the thing is, because he is love, and because he is good, then those things that he decides to do aren't because he's tweaking and playing with you. Ha <laughs> ha, look what I can do. It's never like that. He is good. At root, at heart, rock solid. And you know what? You play how you practice. So you need to practice this in your own head. You need to practice this idea that God is good at the foundation of everything. No matter what's happening, no matter how ugly it feels, no matter how hard it is to understand. When you know that you know that you know God is good and you can know it in the good time. Then as soon as you hit that time when you don't get it, it's easy. It's defined. It's, it's founded. That stake has been pounded into the ground. You know it's true. And so you go from there and you go, I don't get it, but God is good. And I know that. And I'll tell you what, then you can walk in peace. Amen? Amen. Just before we go back into worship, God's trying to touch something here. And so Joel just shared something with me. I want him to share it with you because it's more of a testimony of what Jim's just talking about. So about two months ago, I got, uh, I got passed over on a promotion for the company that I work for. And I was pretty sure that I was in the running for that position. So I was, I was pretty upset by it. And the, the circumstances that it all came together seemed a little bit auspicious. <laughs> and, you know, I was struggling with how to deal with that. And I was out fencing with my dad, just the absolute wealth of wisdom. And he said life is like a ladder and that when you skip rungs it hurts you in the long run so what I've learned in the past couple of months is that God works everything for the best I wasn't ready for that position there's there's more for me to learn and it would have hurt me to skip rungs you know a couple months back I was speaking and uh, I shared with you guys a little practical lesson on uh, connecting the dot puzzles Anybody remember that? I know Ben and Janet were really good at it, but I showed a bunch of pictures of the connecting the dots. Some that were easy to see the future, what it was, well, that's a dolphin, that's this, but somewhere there were 500 dots to 1,000 dots, and you couldn't see what was happening. But, the time, but by the time you finished connecting all the dots, you saw that God was creating a beautiful picture. And that's who he is, and that's what he's doing. He's creating a masterpiece right now with our lives, and we need to trust him within that that he knows what he's doing. And I want to touch on one other thing before we go back in, because the other thing I heard was this, is I felt there were others in our room, this room this morning, that felt like, you know what, I don't see him as a bad God, but I see myself as a bad son or daughter. I heard that loud and clear. I'm not a good, I'm not a good son. I just, show of hands, how many in here have had those moments where we've been a bad son or daughter? I mean, let's just be honest. Okay, so you can look around the room. That's all of us. We have those moments when we're bad sons and daughters. 
In fact, I know for a fact right now, all the parents in here can say this. Have your kids ever just really annoyed you and made you angry? Did you hate them? Did you dislike them? No. You loved them. And that's our Father in heaven. Is those moments happen. But it's not out of this anger. It's out of a deep love for you and I. That's what he has. It's just a deep love. And so, Father, this morning, if that's you, if you're struggling to actually believe that the Father in heaven loves you, just put your hand on your head. If you're actually struggling with that today, that I struggle to believe that he would love someone like me, there's a lot of people. So, Father, right now, God, we pray for each individual in here that is struggling with this. Because, Father, we know your heart. Your heart is all full of love. And, Father, for each individual in this room right now, your heart is so big for them. And, Father, where those lies creep in from the enemy that I'm not loved, how can someone love someone like me? Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, we come against those lies. We break those lies in the name of Jesus. And, Father, right now, we pray that just an overwhelming love would flow in this room, that you would touch each heart, God. Father, each person right now that feels that resistance to you, that feels that block towards the Father, that doesn't believe a Father in heaven could love them. Father, just reach your hand through and touch them, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. So as we started this vein, I was feeling right at the beginning that God was going to encounter some people with his love. I started to catch little glimpses of different people. But what I'm in this moment, what I'm looking for is who encountered the love of God and would be willing to come and just share for a few seconds. Well, I saw Jesus on the cross. <laughs> I saw him made himself helpless. I'm always so defensive that he, I don't know, but I don't know the words, but that's what I saw. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean a little bit with that. What did you feel when you saw that? I felt his love. He would do anything for us. And I, what would I do for him? Thanks. Sometimes it's important to press a little further beyond what just that first bit because there's treasure just a, a little further down too. That's huge what Tammy just said. Anyone else? For me, not an amazing emotional overwhelming feeling so much, but something profound walking in here and realizing that his love is washing away all those little parts of me that are striving to be accepted. There's silly little things sometimes and silly big things at the same time. But much as I know in my mind that I'm accepted in Christ, that he's done everything for me, that I can walk as a son, there's all these little patterns throughout my life, whether it's how I respond to someone in the grocery store or whether, you know, okay, am I getting up with my alarm clock or not? And all these little things turn into Am I performing or am I not performing? Am I okay or am I not okay? And God's just saying that, Josh, you're a son. He says that to each one here. You're my son. You're my daughter. 
I'm jealous over you. I want you. I want to rescue you from all of those little areas where you're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to kind of resist me. You're almost like my flow of water is coming toward you and you're diverting it this way and that. Diverting it toward this, this thing that needs to be fulfilled here, this thing that needs to be accepted there. And I can't flow my water through you because it's being diverted to your own, the, the satisfaction of your, your, your own acceptance, where I've accepted you. Can you lean into that acceptance? Can you feel that, that I, I love you? Can you lay those things down? Can you lay down your, your selfishness and your pride and all of these things that just kind of sit in the way and create a dam? Dam up the water that I'm, the life that I'm flowing through you and, and let that flow out to others. Let that flow in personality. Let that flow in joy. Let that flow in ministry. Let that flow, flow, flow. I've asked Nathan over the next several weeks, he'll come one more time just to share a little bit more on fasting, but we'll see what the Lord laid on his heart for today. You should just fast because you're supposed to. <laughs> just saying. Um, I'll tell you why right away. Uh, let's just invite the Holy Spirit. I don't know why, but I, this idea of fasting troubles me. Holy Spirit, we love you. We invite you to move on us and to stir us as you stirred Christ. Stir us. We love you. So in Matthew, Jesus speaks about fasting. He says, moreover, when you fast, means you will fast. So if you haven't fasted, you can fast tomorrow. Because he said, when you fast. Do not be like hypocrites. I just want to say about fasting, fasting is normal Christianity. It's not at all an abnormal, super spiritual thing. And I said that last time, but I want to hammer that over and over and over again. That is just normal. Christians fast. And of course, we're like, oh, it's legalism and blah, blah, blah. And that's just garbage. And you can throw that away. Um, and it's that easy because you will fast and you will hit legalism. And that's part of the fasting to confront legalism that's in you that you can put away without doing this glorious mandate. Okay, anyway, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. If you fast... Your father, who sits on the throne like Jasper and Sardius Stone, he will see you and he will reward you openly. He will pour out on you in this age and the age to come. That is the promise that came out of Jesus' mouth. So that's why you should fast. He said, when we do it, and there's a reward from the father. So if you don't fast, you will miss a reward. There's no way around that. You'll get before the throne of grace. You'll stand there, and you will lack rewards that were available to you. And you will actually see the rewards that were available to you, and it will pierce you in that day. We have an idea. And after it pierces you, Christ will wipe away your tears after that. But you will experience those tears. Um, another thing I want to say about fasting before... Oh, anyway. So the point of fasting, one of the points of fasting is to humble yourself. That's why Jesus was confronting it this way, because they were doing fasting as a means of, 
a pretend humility. You see it in Isaiah 58. They were fasting, and they were humbling themselves, and they were bowing themselves down. But actually, to exalt themselves over their laborers, that I'm a superior human, I do this thing, and therefore I'm better than you, and I can beat you lower and lower into the dust. And that was why the Pharisees fasted, to exalt themselves and beat down the lowly. But the point of fasting is to enter in to be the lowly. When you fast, you actually say, I have nothing. I have zero. I'm, I'm without anything. I would starve myself to have the knowledge of God. That's how low I am. That is the reality of fasting. It's a painful yes in your spirit that says, I must have more, and I will do anything to get more. And that's, that's the hunger of fasting. That's the thing that stirred in you. And if you're going, well, I don't even feel that hunger for more, fast, and God will give that to you as a reward of that reality of hunger. That's a part of fasting. He gives you more reward. To the hungry, he gives more. And he gives more, and he pours out more. And the more you'll, so you'll think, oh, I'll just get away from fasting. You'll fast more. And you'll give yourself more to God in overwhelming ways. And that's how you see everyone in Scripture. So the point of fasting is to humble yourself. That is one of the supreme things about fasting. It brings you to the lowest state. And if you fast for a longer period, which we're sort of, it's like a 21-day fast, kind of. I don't know. It's like from the 16th of, no, 26th of August, roughly, to the 16th of September. And the la I think it's the last three days of that fast, the when Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We're asking it to be just on water, I think encouraging to be just on water no one's going to beat you but interesting concept daniel signed up his buddies to fast imagine that you finally got into the king's court wine and meat finally we we're getting garbage before and your buddy's like oh we don't want that bring us vegetables he's they had no i guess we don't know but from scripture it doesn't seem as though they had a choice daniel just signed them up so if i could i would just sign up everyone in here um but you would go home and maybe not listen um Anyway, so that's all I really want to say about the humility aspect. It's, to me, it's basic. And really, the only way to enter in is to start doing it. There's no, you can get taught and everything else. And it pains me because teaching this won't help you unless you just go and fast, unless you give yourself. On those 21 days, on the first day, you just say yes. And yeah, it's long, so you can do it on juice, or you can do it on broth, or you can do it on vegetables, or you can choose something. But it is fasting food. I'm not talking about video games. I'm going to be a jerk about this. I'm not talking about video games and TV. Because if it was up to me, which it isn't, but if it was, we would do what we did in Ephesus, and we would gather them all together, and we would just destroy them, and then we wouldn't have to worry whether we should fast those or not, because they would just be destroyed. And then we could give ourselves abandonedly to God. And that sounds like legalism, but when you gaze at the beauty of God, you can throw everything away, and it's not legalism. You would cast everything aside so that you might gaze at his face. Um... And then the last thing I kind of want to say is, we actually cannot enter in without fasting. We actually cannot enter in without fasting. We will not touch the depths of the beauty and the knowledge of God if we don't fast. And it's an issue of the heart, but if you look at the man Christ Jesus, he did not enter in without fasting. He broke forth in miracles and signs and wonders and the love of God, and he goes to the cross out of fasting. So to say that you can put that aside is just my heart's okay. If your heart's okay, you will fast. It's the, it's the thing of Scripture. Look at all the men whose hearts were good, and they fasted. Um, Anna in the temple, her heart was pure, and she gave herself for 80 years to prayer and fasting, looking for the coming of Christ. And so I just want to pierce that into your heart over and over again. We will not enter in if we do not enter this. And if your heart is gripped and you don't know, just start. 
it just even this week again pick a day in weakness and say I'll just Tuesdays, I'll just fast Tuesdays or whatever. And obviously there's like complications. If you're pregnant, you shouldn't just drink water. That's stupid. And there's all those things that are like obvious. So don't go away being like, well, I can't or I have this disease or this thing. But it's funny when you talk about fasting, everyone has a disease and they can't fast. And you're like, well, where, where were all these sick people before we talked about fasting? So like if you have problems, that's real. And you got to go within your bounds. But just give yourself a fasting. Amen. I'm done. So Friday, if you want to bring all your TVs, we're going to burn them and stuff, right? <laughs> so the official dates, uh, August 26th to the 16th, for those that want to take part in the 21-day fast. Uh, originally, we started with a three-day fast, but we felt we needed to open it up. For those that actually want to partake in a 21-day fast, that's when it will start. But when we're asking the body to go into a corporate fast is the 14th to the 16th, the Wednesday to the Friday there. And then the Saturday, people will break their fast. And Sunday, Wendy wants to do a family feast, all right? So she wanted you to have a day to kind of have your stomachs get back to normal before we do a massive feast, all right? So those are the dates. Mark it down. Let's welcome Paul. Holy Spirit, we invite you in. God is good. Turn your neighbor. Tell him God's good. All right. So this morning, if you want to get a head start uh, and open up your Bible, um, I'm going to start in Matthew 28. Um, this right here is one of my many many awesome Bibles. And the thing about this Bible, this specific Bible, is that when I look at it, it's a reminder of where I have come from. Because I got that Bible when I was 10 years old from Jim and Gaylene. And it's a reminder of the journey that God has taken me on this far, and it's a reminder that he has an even better journey coming down the road. Now, the reason I have it up here is because this week... A few of our youth told me it would be a really, really good idea to use it. And after about 30 seconds, I decided that was the best idea ever. So a little later, I'll tell you why I have it. But this morning before I start, I want you to know two things. Number one, I just love high fives. There's nothing more satisfying than the sound of a really, really good high five. So again, turn to your neighbor and give them the best high five you can possibly imagine. The second thing I want you to know is that I have an agenda this morning. I don't want to just get up here, talk for 30 minutes, and everybody goes home and has a great Sunday afternoon. I love asking questions. Questions are super powerful. You see this all the time in your life. You all have that friend that, you know, they come complaining to you about a problem. And as a good friend that's not emotionally involved in their situation, what do you do? You tell them what to do. Then the next week, they come back. They come back complaining about the exact same thing, and you, again, tell them what to do. Three years later of you telling them what to do, 
it finally clicks and they make the change in their life. But the thing is, if you can ask them the right question and they spend time thinking about that question and they start to process it and listen to the Holy Spirit, they usually learn a lesson a whole lot quicker. My agenda this morning is to get as many people as possible to leave church today and later this afternoon or during the week to take some time and ask really important questions. So this morning as I'm talking and the Holy Spirit puts something on your heart or he whispers something to you, pull out a piece of paper, write it down. Pull out your notepad on your phone and write it down. And later this week, go back to that question in your time with God and ask him, what are you trying to teach me in that? What are you trying to show me? Okay, I'm going to tell a story. A new bride decides she's going to go all out and make her new husband feel special and surprise him by making an amazing meal. She kicks him out of the house on a sunny Saturday afternoon to play golf with his friends, and she gets to work in the kitchen, working really really hard to get the meal ready. She cuts off both of the ends of the ham, puts it in a roaster, and puts it in the oven. She cuts and peels potatoes for mashed potatoes. She cooks corn, carrots, and makes an amazing apple pie from scratch. Her husband gets home from golfing, and he's really surprised. He feels really, really special, exactly what she was hoping for. They sit down to the meal and start talking about their future and about their dreams. Where do you see our marriage in six months? Where do you see it in a year? What about five years? I know we agreed to only have two kids, but I've been thinking, and I really appreciate my two older brothers, and maybe we could talk more about having three. Everything is perfect. About halfway through the meal, the husband looks at his wife and asks, honey, can I ask you a question? Everything's been going really well, so she responds with, sure. Why is it that you cut two inches of good ham off both sides before you cook the ham? This question kind of catches her off guard, and without knowing why, some emotions start to rise up inside of her that she can't explain. The night's going well, so she just pushes those emotions back down and manages to respond with, because that's the way you do it. It makes the ham taste better. How do you know, he asks. With this question, the emotions she can't explain come back a lot stronger. Pushing them down is not working as the frustration, sadness, and anger that she can't explain start to build. And in one second flat, all these thoughts go through her head. Why does he hate my ham? He must hate the whole meal. I think my hair would look really good if I dyed the ends. Why didn't my dad buy me that doll when I was six? My husband doesn't appreciate the work I did to make this meal. Why doesn't he love me? I really want to go to Disneyland. Why did we get married? Meanwhile, in his head, he's thinking, how did I miss that putt on hole six? Why does she cut the end off the hams? Those two pieces would be really great for a sandwich in about an hour. Uh-oh, it looks like she's getting upset. Don't worry, I can fix it. <laughs> so he responds, don't get upset, honey. There's nothing to get upset about. Here's a life tip that you can Snapchat or tweet about later. Whenever you tell someone, don't get upset, that never works. She loses it and yells, that's the way you're supposed to do it. That's what my mom told me. Now, she doesn't know why she's upset. He doesn't know why she's upset. World War III starts, and he spends the night on his couch. 
are on the couch at his brother's house. So I'm going to pause here for a little, a uh, couple seconds. Single people. The reason most of the married people laughed so awkwardly is because that this is a part of their story. This has probably happened to them at some point. And single people, if at some point in, your, in this story you thought, that's never going to happen to me, after church I want you to find a married person and then they will set you straight. Okay, so back to the story. The next day, the couple's barely talking and they head over to visit the in-laws. Sitting around the living room, the husband looks at his wife, figures he can't really make things any, any worse. And he looks at his mother-in-law and says, Dear mother-in-law, why is it that you cut the ends off a ham before you cook it? Well, that's the way my mother taught me because it makes it taste better. After his argument yesterday, he knows not to push it any further. So he stands up and amidst the glares from his wife, he announces he's going to go ask grandma. He heads to the next room where grandma's sitting reading, and by this point, the rest of the family is curious, so they follow him into the room. Grandma, why is it that when you make a ham, you cut both ends off the ham before you cook it? You silly boy. I haven't made a ham in years. But when grandpa and I first got married, we didn't have a lot of money. We could only afford a really small roasting pan. So whenever I made a ham, I always had to cut the ends off the ham before I could fit it in the roaster. So the point of that story is not to tell you that if you cut the ends off your ham, you're doing it wrong. The point of the story is, is to say that we need to spend more time asking ourselves honest questions, because questions are powerful. We all live our lives and we do our own thing, but ultimately there are some things we do and some behaviors that we don't ever stop to think about why we really do them. I think we need to ask ourselves more questions. Questions like, why is it that when we see someone texting and driving, we get really defensive and judgmental, but the second we're driving and we get that text, all of a sudden it's more important than the road? What is that inside of us? Or questions like, why is it every Sunday morning in North America, millions of people file into a church and they sit in roughly the exact same seat? If they're really crazy, they might move a row forward. But usually, we don't leave our three-seat row of comfort. Why is it, as Christians, we are really, really good at pointing out other people's sins? But when it comes to our own, we're really, really good at justifying them. Asking ourselves important questions and not hiding from the truth is so important with our walk with God and how we walk with others. And in a couple minutes, I'm going to ask you what I believe is one of the most important questions we can ask. So since this is church, I should probably get to the Bible. So if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew 28. I'm going to read the Great Commission in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the 
age. Then I want to jump over to John 13. John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then finally, one more jump to 1 Corinthians 13. This is why they invented apps for Bibles. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to start in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I'm going to stop there and, and kind of jump back to Matthew and say, go and make disciples of all nations. The thing about Matthew 28 and why I think that this verse is so important is because Jesus knows he's about to leave the earth. He just spent three years with these, these apostles watching them fail and watching them learn, watching them make mistakes and do stupid things. He knows he's about to leave them forever and he knows that he has time to say one more thing to them before he is gone and he has to make it really good. And the thing he talks about is we need to go and make disciples of all nations. The question with that is how do we demonstrate how Jesus changed our lives? And that's said in John 13, 35. They'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Not how many times you show up at church, not how many times you pray, not how much of the Bible you read. Those things are really important, but the greatest impact on the world will be through how we treat each other. Our greatest effect on the people in our world that, we may, nev- that may never walk through the doors of the church will be by the example and the models of our lives. So how should we treat each other? Well, Paul answers that in 1 Corinthians 13. Be kind, be patient, don't be rude, don't hold grudges, rejoice in truth, always protect, always trust, always hope, Love never fails. And I don't like what our culture has done to this verse, and to this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Pretty much every single wedding you ever go to, someone stands up, usually the pastor, and says, and, and, and uh, recites part of 1 Corinthians 13. And the outcome of those weddings is that every time a pastor or someone else starts reading 1 Corinthians 13 at a church, all the single people's eyes glaze over. And they stop listening because they think, well, I'm single, I'm not married, I don't need to know how to love someone. And all the married people, all of a sudden now they're flashback to their wedding. And they're thinking about how great their dress was and how the, uh, the groomsman stumbled up the stairs as he was walking. And I think it's easy for us to lose the value and the weight of these verses. The Apostle Paul didn't write this verse to married people. He didn't say, single people, take a nap, it's okay. Married people, listen up, this is super important. He wrote it to the whole entire church. So if we are called to make disciples, and we will influence and change the world by how we love each other, and love is patient and kind, here's the question that I want us all to think about. 
and I think we all need to think about every single day. How can I demonstrate 1 Corinthians 13 love today? I think this is the most powerful question you can ask yourself. And then the follow-up question to that is, how can I live that every day? How can I live that out in a practical way? I think first off, to live it out, to really live it out, we need to love ourselves. And I'm not talking about self-help type, rah, 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 write a, a sweet, cool quote on your wall and recite it to yourself every day. That's not what I'm talking about. It's so much deeper than that. I'm talking about, do you know the God who created everything we know about and everything we don't know about willingly chose to leave heaven, come down to a stinky, gross, broken world, go through the most painful, brutal, horrific death just to prove that he loves you unconditionally? And to top it off, if, we had to do, if he had to do it all over just for one of us, he would in a second. That's the type of love that I'm talking about, that we need to understand. Unconditionally, nothing held back pure love. A few months ago, I had the joy of babysitting a couple of, one of my nieces and one of my nephews. So me and my nephew are playing uh, with Lego, and my niece heads into her room to uh, grab a book for me to read. She doesn't come out after a little while, so I go into her room just to make sure she's finding it okay. And now if you're ever around kids with diapers, you understand the smell. The smell. The best part about being an uncle is that usually at that point I can give them back. But I walked into a room and the smell was everywhere. It was disgusting. And my thir first thought was, oh no, please let it be gas, please let it be gas. So I checked it out and nope, it literally destroyed her diaper. It was one of the grossest things I've ever seen. So then I'm thinking, okay, it's 6.30, her bedtime's at 7, maybe I can leave her in her diaper and her parents can change it when they get back. But nope, they won't be back till after she's in bed. But I could tell them she was clean when I went to bed, when she went to bed, and they probably wouldn't even notice, and I can get away without having to touch the atomic bomb that just happened in the diaper. So at 7 o'clock, I put her to bed, her parents got home in a, at 8, and I beelined it out of the house. I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. <laughs> That's disgusting. I love my niece so much that I was willing to get into that atomic bomb of a diaper and to clean her up. But isn't that sometimes how we think of God? Well, God, look at my atomic mess. It's so big that he probably doesn't want to deal with it, and we have a hard time accepting the fact that he already demonstrated to us through the cross that he loves us mess and all. This is a massive concept. A lot of conversations I have with people where they're struggling with something is usually comes back to this. They wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, hate what they see, and they hate the fact that they're living in a dirty diaper. So they put up walls and barriers and defense mechanisms because they don't want to be exposed to anyone. And they don't want other people to see their dirty diaper. The danger in that is that then we live our lives from a place of self-hate, and it affects everyone around us. I spent a lot of my life living like that, always hiding, never being vulnerable, because I was afraid that no one would like me if they saw who I really was. 
But I was fortunate in my early 20s to have an encounter with Jesus where I experienced his love so strongly that it started shifting my identity and who I was. And I began to learn how to live my life out of that confidence in his love for me, and it changed who I was becoming. I'm definitely far from perfect, and I struggle some days. But I've felt the love of Jesus so strongly over the last decade that I can honestly, confidently stand in front of everyone I know and read from my salty Bible with no fear and no shame. And my hope and my desire is that every single one of us has an encounter with the real love of Jesus. To the point where we are all so confident that we can stand in front of everyone we know and say, I'm weird, I'm quirky, here's the real me, I'm not ashamed because I'm unconditionally loved by my daddy God. I know that there are people in here that have never experienced that. And I know that every single one of us that has still needs a reminder of this. We saw it this morning. We are all human and we all have days where we feel low, down, or forgotten. And I pray that this week, every single day, we would begin to get into the Bible and into prayer and ask Jesus to reveal that love he has to us because it will honestly change your life. This is key because we cannot give away what we haven't received. I cannot make a mortgage payment until I've received the paycheck. And it's the same with this. I can love other people, but to love them the way Jesus loves me, I first need to experience that love of Jesus. Because the second way we need to live out this this love is we need to learn to love other people. It sounds simple, it sounds like common sense, but it's not. And you just have to take a look around at our society and our culture to see that. Truly loving other people is really, really hard and it is really, really scary because it requires that we become vulnerable and we expose who we are. But they'll know you're my disciples by how we love one another. The greatest impact and witness we can have for the kingdom of heaven to those people, especially that are running away from God, is by the way we treat each other. And I believe the majority of that comes down to the words that we speak to each other. Do you know what one of the most dangerous and the most damaging things to relationships is? And it's dangerous and damaging because it's subtle and because it's culturally accepted and it's normal in our culture now. And it's sarcasm. I hear this all the time. Well, Paul, I have a sarcastic sense of humor. Or, well, I'm just a sarcastic person. And I'm going to be brutally honest and say that's the biggest load of garbage possible. It's the biggest cultural lie that we all believe. No one is a sarcastic person. We are sons of God. We are daughters of God. And that should be our identity. Sarcasm is a mask. It's a defense mechanism because we are afraid to be vulnerable and we are afraid to be exposed for who we really are. So we use sarcasm and our sense of humor as protection and as a wall. And yeah, for some people it might not be a defense mechanism, but in that case it's simply a learned behavior. It's something that your parents or your grandparents or someone older than you taught that you could do because it was okay. But just like the new bride in that story who learned after asking a really important question that cutting the ends off ham is weird, if we're honest with ourselves and ask ourselves and the Holy Spirit the hard questions, we could probably trace back our sarcasm to a parent or a grandparent who developed it as a defense mechanism 
and then passed that legacy down through us. This is harsh. We as Christians should be completely intolerant of sarcasm or words of death that degrade or diminish the God-given value of another human being ever, even as a joke. We never know what mental or emotional state that person we were talking to is in. And after saying something harsh, do we really think that saying, well, I was just joking is going to make up for it? If you can't tell, I'm really passionate about this. And here's why. Because I get the honor of hanging out with a lot of teenagers, whether that's here, out in our community, or going into the schools. And I see all the God-given potential in that generation that's being stifled and destroyed because someone somewhere decided it was okay to speak down to them because they're just a teenager or they're just a child. And that person spoke words of death over those people. Our words have the power of life and death. And if you could hear some of the words I have heard spoken over some teenagers in our community, I think a lot more of us would make an effort to always speak life and hope into that generation whenever we had the chance to talk with them. And I believe that as a church family, we should be completely intolerant of it. Every word that comes out of our mouth is leaving a legacy of your life in that person you're speaking to or speaking about in your conversations. That legacy is either going to be one that is godly, positive, and life-giving, or it's going to be one that is full of negativity and destruction. To kind of make it more concrete, let me put it this way. For those of you that have kids, or for those of us that want to have kids one day, do we really want the legacy in our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren to be, become one of potential depression? Because in the moment a joke was made at the expense of a child or teenager, and that we thought because we only said, I'm only joking, it would make the words hurt less? Whether we see the outcome of our words or not, our words plant seeds. I battled with depression most of my life, and it was because words were spoken over me as a child that got planted in my heart that made me believe the lie that I was not good enough. And it breaks my heart to see people living broken lives because of a few random words. Final way we need to live this out is we need to love the unlovable. I almost didn't talk about this, but I feel like I still need to touch on it. Because for most of us, when we hear the words, we need to love the unlovable, we usually think of that old angry guy at work that yells at everybody that no one talks to because he's so angry. Or we think of homeless people in downtown Edmonton. But that's not who I'm talking about. A lot of the time, the people who are the hardest to love are the ones who are closest to us. For some of us, it might be a parent. For others, it's a child. It might be a person from a past relationship or a divorce. It might be a sibling or even a friend that betrayed us. For me, one of those people I had to learn to love and to forgive was my dad. I am in no way bashing my dad. He was a really good man. I loved my dad, and I know my dad loved me, and he did the best he could, but he was still a human, and humans make mistakes. There was some stuff that happened in his life that he never had the chance to work through, and because of that, it affected how he treated my siblings and I. We grew up in an atmosphere that at times could be really negative. He passed away when I was 16, and God began a long, long process and journey of me taking a step back from my situation 
and looking at that situation with a new perspective and seeing how much Jesus loved my dad. Seeing that how my dad acted was not who he was. The whole time he was a son of God. He was unconditionally loved and cared for. Jesus died for him just as much as he died for me. And when you experience the love of Jesus for yourself and start to see how much Jesus loves everyone around you, even the seemingly unlovable, it changes how you look at that person. And I'm sure if I sat down with every single one of you for a cup of coffee and each of you told me your story, I'm sure you'd be totally justified in not loving that person. But the truth that so many of us have a hard time facing is if Jesus, 1 Corinthians 13, loves us first unconditionally, then doesn't he, 1 Corinthians 13, love that person as well? And if Jesus loved me and us so much that he died for us and he tells us to love others, then shouldn't we do everything we can to love like Jesus, even the people that appear to not deserve it? Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying if someone hurts you, you should jump right back into the danger zone. There's definitely a time for tough love and healthy boundaries. I had to establish some boundaries, and it took me a long time to heal and forgive my dad. We definitely need that time to heal and recover. And that's why community is so important. While having relationships and support structures and counselors and mentors and wisdom being spoken into our lives is so needed to help us make wise decisions and to help establish healthy boundaries so we can heal. But when someone close to us hurts us, we only have two options. We can continue to live in the past and hold on to the hurt, the pain, the hate, and allow it to consume our lives and hold us back. Or we can look to the future, turn that stuff over to God, retreat into safety for a season and start the long process of healing, forgiving, and loving again. We don't forgive them for the other person's sake. We don't forgive and the other person gets off for how they treated us. There are consequences. But we choose to forgive and love because Jesus first loved us. And we forgive for our own sake because that is a part of the healing process. Sometimes it's a really quick process and sometimes it takes a really, really, really long time of waking up every single day and choosing to love and forgive that person. So after setting that ridiculously high standard of loving ourselves, loving others, and loving the unlovable, I want to tell you this. We are human. We're never going to get this perfect. There are going to be days when we lash out or say something mean or treat someone poorly. But the good news is, is that Jesus loves us unconditionally, and he has grace for us. So how do we respond in those times we mess up? My hope is that we repent to who we hurt. We accept the love and grace of Jesus. We step back up and we keep pushing forward in our journey. So again, here's the question I want everybody to leave today asking themselves and asking the Holy Spirit. How can I demonstrate 1 Corinthians 13 love today? For some of us, we need to accept the fact that Jesus loves us unconditionally. We need to open up our hearts and let God and other people dig into our dirty diaper 
so that it can be cleaned up and we can let go of all the hurt, pain, disappointment, bitterness that we've been holding on to. For others, we need to learn to love others better. The way we've been treating the people around us is not okay. The words we say to them, the sarcasm, the gossip, tearing down, it's not okay and it needs to change. And then for others of us, there's someone in our life that we need to forgive so we can start to heal and move on. Could you imagine the impact on our community if when we went out, people could look at us and see that we were different? Could you imagine even on our close relationships with the people that we love, if we woke up every single day and decided that whatever happens, I am going to 1 Corinthians 13 love you today. I don't know exactly the impact it would have, but I think we would start hearing more statements like, hey, I don't know what it is about you guys, but when I'm around you, I feel so welcomed and loved. Hey, I don't know what it is about how you treat your spouse and how you treat your kids, but it's different. Could you tell me more about that? Hey, I don't want to come to your church on a Sunday morning, but if you guys ever do a barbecue or something, could I come and hang out with you guys? Hey, I don't know what it is about you, but whenever I'm around you, you are always so positive and I want to spend more time around you. I don't know the complete impact we can have if we choose to wake up every day and to just love. But I do know that it will be worth it. Um, can we all stand up together? I think one of the greatest demonstrations that we get to see of true love on this earth is between a grandparent and a grandchild. Grandparents don't have to love that kid, but they choose to. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched Jim and Gaylene around baby Royce, but it is the cutest, most loving and tender thing to watch them with him when they scoop him up in their arms and they just love him. I've actually asked them to come up here and pray over us as a body and as a family that God would start to pour out even more of his love into every single one of us. It started this morning, but there's so much more. And they're going to pray for all of us that are here, and they're going to pray for even the ones that are missing today. And you know what's cool is that when your heart is full, that love thing is not hard. <laughs> In fact, it's completely involuntary. And so I just ask right now, Heavenly Father, over us as a body, that you would fill us so full of love that it can't help but overflow. And God, that you would allow us to see each other the way you see us, so that we would respond to each other based on your vision of each of us. And that that love would just be so natural that, that when I see you the way God sees you, oh my goodness, what else am I going to do? I'm just going to love you. And so, Father, I pray that for each one of us, that revelation. As Paul talked about, God, I ask that we would have encounters with your love. God, I ask that your love would be able to um, bypass all the things that uh, cause us to push it away or, or hinder us from receiving. God, I just I ask that you would break, 
break the strongholds in our lives, God, that, that cause us to believe the lie that, first of all, that you might not love us or that you love us conditionally or anything like that. God, I pray that your love would be something that we would actually tangibly encounter this week. And God, I ask that we would be able to receive the love that you have for us individually, but God, I ask that you would even greater enable us to receive the love that you have for each one, for the ones that we see this week, for people that we see in the grocery store. God, I ask that your love would uh, start flowing through it, us in a physical way. Um, I keep thinking perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love ca casts out that resistance. <laughs> so God, I ask for that perfect love to just flow, flow, flow. God, I know that I am not perfect in love. And so I ask for a greater, hmm. God, your, your measure is complete. So I ask for a greater ability to believe and receive for myself, for the people that are here, for the people in this body that are not here. Change us, God. Impact our lives in such a way that they will know that we are Christians by our love. And Lord, I pray as well that for those who suffer from, from you know, self-loathing, from hating what I've done, the, the failure that, I, that I've walked through, whatever it is, Father, I pray right now that that would be seen even in yourself, that you, as, as you feel that come on you, you would see that as like a warning light on the dashboard, that you'd go, hey, wait a minute, there's a lie here. There's a lie here. I feel that self-loathing, that self-hate, but I'm, I'm remembering when I feel that, I got to remember that's a lie. That's a lie. God loves me, and I can receive his love for me, and I can love myself, and with that, I can love others. So, Lord, I pray right now that you would put healing over that, that you, would, uh, that you would make that lie so obvious, so clear, that we wouldn't have to spend any time entertaining it at all, but that we'd be able to immediately dismiss it and to, to receive your love and to walk in it and to walk it out in Jesus' name. Sure. So here's, here's, my, here's my final. Here's the thing, is our tendency is to leave church and just go. So if the Holy Spirit said something to you, if you need to talk to someone, if you need to do whatever it is, don't rush out. Take some time to come up here. We'll pray for you. Do, do whatever you got to. Um, but please don't rush out. So, yeah, God, I pray a blessing on this body, God. I pray that love would emanate from us. That this week as we go back to work and we go back to wherever, that, that we would walk in a room and things would change, God. So fill everyone here with your spirit. Holy Spirit locked and loaded. Yeah, so I bless you all. I love you all. Um, have a great week. Give someone a hug on your way out. And uh, we'll see you all next week.